Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. We highlight keen investment insights and strategies so you can become a real estate mogul. Here's your host, Yannick Kujo Virgin. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Mogul Marathon Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Yannick Kujo Virgil, and I'm very, very excited for our guest today. Today, we have a guest that is a specialist in affordable housing development, and he is the executive vice president of the Peebles Corporation. Today's guest is Donahue Peebles III. As I mentioned, Donahue is the executive vice president of the Peebles Corporation and handles new acquisitions and business development. Donahue actively pursues public and private real estate transactions for the Peebles Corporation in various markets, including Florida, D.C., and other metropolitan areas. And in addition to that, he maintains substantial involvement in pre-development phases and is capable of advancing projects from the development process all the way through completion. And so Donahue is also the chairman of Legacy Real Estate Development, LLC, which is a residential real estate development firm that focuses on the development and acquisition of low-income housing projects in South Florida, D.C., and other New York uh, locations. And so he also serves communities by engaging with the multiple communities that benefit and expose the youth to various opportunities and entrepreneurship and various other organizations to improve the quality of life of impoverished and special needs individuals on a global scale. So Donahue, thank you so much for being a guest on our show today. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a pleasure to be here. And the bio you just read for me is the nicest thing that anybody's ever said about me. So I'm going to take that. I'm going to repeat it when I go on dates and we'll kind of see how it goes from there. <laughs> but, uh, but man, I, I appreciate you having me on. And, and obviously, you know, you and I have known each other for a number of years. I've always been, you know, someone who's admired your success from afar. I'm jealous of you because not, not only have you succeeded athletically and been an NFL player when as close as I get is Madden. But, but you've also done an amazing job in the commercial real estate space. And now you're going to be a celebrity on the podcast. So, you know, I feel a lot less accomplished uh, now that I put it all in perspective. But, uh, you know, really glad to be here. <laughs> well, I appreciate the, the nice sentiments, man. And, um, I, you know, I admire what you're doing as well uh, from afar. Obviously, this podcast is called the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast because this commercial real estate uh, journey is it's a journey. Right. And it's not something that. You know, contrary to what social media tells you, it's not an easy industry to break into, specifically as, you know, someone of color getting into this space. It is very, very challenging. But before we dive into the details and all the things that we're talking about today, you know, for our audience who don't know who you are, you know, what you're doing, give us a little bit of color behind, you know, your your story and how do you get to where you are today? My introduction to, to commercial real estate, unfortunately, was pretty easy. You know, it was a Tuesday, uh, April 5th, 1994. I was born about 6.15 a.m. to uh, my mother, Katrina, and my father, uh, Don Peebles Jr. My father also happened to be a successful and increasingly successful real estate developer at that time. And whether it's nature or nurture, he uh, was very intentional and deliberate about bringing me up in the business. So when I was a kid, I learned how to add and subtract on, on P&Ls, how to 
you know, when you learn to carry a number, I, I figured out how to get to NLI. You know, when I learned long division as a fourth grader, my dad sat me down and said, let's teach you what a cap rate is. When after basketball practice, when, you know, you're a kid, you want to go to McDonald's, get a McFlurry or a double cheeseburger, whatever it is, in order to get the treat and be allowed to go, uh, I'd have to solve a real estate word problem. So he would say, all right, pick a building on the street. Let's assume zoning and come up with a residual land value. And the thing with my father, that not only was he intentional and, and deliberate about it, but he held me and, and my sister to a high standard of excellence. If we got the question wrong, or if I got the question wrong, we didn't go to McDonald's. And that was a you know a big difference, I think, between me and, and my peers who also came from you know successful backgrounds or successful real estate backgrounds, is that you know my father uh, was was very, very straightforward about teaching the correlation between effort and, and reward. And so I had the benefit of learning from somebody who not only taught me the technical aspects of the business very, very intimately, uh, was practicing them at an exceptionally high level, but someone who understood the intangibles that were necessary in order to be successful and foster a home environment that uh, you know allowed those intangibles to, to grow naturally. So in large part, you know, when, when people ask me, you know, how, how'd you get started in real estate or you know, what do you owe the, the success that you had so far? I mean, the, the truth is it's simple. You know, it's it's my father and, and I'm, I'm a beneficiary of a massive amount of accumulated advantage, you know, uh, both from, from the wealth and access that was provided to me as a kid, but I think also from from the knowledge and, and character that uh, my family helped build in me as, as I was younger and grown up. You know, I worked uh, for Gilgey Credit Suisse for a little bit, um, went to Columbia University for undergrad, when uh, I came out of college, uh, ended up you know shortly thereafter working for my father, you know, and uh, uh, learning real estate in a much more you know hands-on and tangible sense. In 2017, uh, I ended up founding Legacy Real Estate Development. It's a you know sister corporation to the People's Corporation, and we focus uh, entirely on the development of affordable and mixed-income housing. You know, in large part, a uh, big passion for me is solving public problems. You know, and, and oftentimes that's done through public-private partnerships, whether we're buying land from municipalities or whether we're leveraging municipal resources from a funding standpoint uh, to create a social or policy outcome that's, that's advantageous. It's something that brings me a lot of meaning. Uh, certainly it pays the bills and, uh, you know, kind of drives the process forward. So, you know, yeah, I'd, I'd say, uh, you know, the journey itself um, has been uh, has been really fruitful. It's... it's uh, uh, so far, you know, had an opportunity to, to work on a wide variety of asset classes, you know, from uh, hospitality, for sale condos, life science, affordable housing, uh, straightforward market rate rentals. We've done some light industrial work. So I've had an opportunity to touch all asset classes uh, in a variety of different markets. And, you know, it's, it's been able to put us in a position, with Peebles and I think Legacy more broadly, uh, to a point where we feel confident navigating through what will ultimately be a really, really challenging market filled with some headwinds and some fetters uh, as we go through the next you know, two or three quarters. Well, that's fantastic, man. That's a, that's a great story. And, and I've always been interested in knowing exactly because for most people, when they're getting into this space, they think that they can do it themselves. They try to figure things out. You know, they may want to just get into deals, you know, larger deals, maybe step up from the single family space and get into larger deals and not really tag on to like a mentor. The reason that I'm bringing this up is that your father is very, very successful in real estate development, right? 
you probably could have just learned everything from him and you, you probably would have been all right. Right. But you also went to school for real estate development. Is that correct? No, 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 not, not at all. Um, I just have a, I just have an undergraduate degree from Columbia. Okay. You know, in uh, I got a joint degree in economics and philosophy. Uh, I wanted to be a math major and I got through like, you know, some of the, the easier lower level calc classes. And I got to some of the harder ones, the class sizes got smaller and, and I realized about midway through that, you know, maybe my talents lie elsewhere. So pivoted to economics that has a math base and then filled the gap with philosophy where we're kind of solving problems from a much more, you know, a subjective or, or intangible way or, or in, it's a more subjective methodology. But, uh, you know, when, when you talk about mentors, like obviously my father was a mentor, but my father, I think more importantly, was a driver. So piece that I skipped over uh, when, when talking about my story is that my father did something that not a lot of founders do. Uh, he gave me a ton of responsibility very, very early on uh, and allowed me to succeed or fail. And then we, we'd have an after action report. We'd review some of the decisions I made and how I could have made them better. And, and looking back on it, I mean, it's, it's pretty irresponsible uh, to have a 19 or 20 year old negotiate, you know, a $40 million lease with your anchor tenant uh, or, you know, run a $165 million transaction uh, with uh, municipality of Washington, D.C. So, you know, I, I, I think it was brave of him to kind of make those decisions and, uh, you know, give me a wide berth to, to do some of those things. But, but ultimately what it created was... Um, you know, a, a sense of confidence in myself and, uh, you know, the ability to be self-reliant. Now, you know, you know, I could talk about other mentors, right? And I think any good business person and any good entrepreneur doesn't just have sort of a single mentor, right? But constantly learns and takes things from the people around them. And so every counterparty, every capital partner, every hotel manager and tax credit equity investor, right? And, and, the folks and the deal teams that I deal with regularly, I'm always looking for, for best practices. Uh, I'm always looking from, from their perspective, how they're evaluating opportunities, holes that, that they see in, in our transactions that, you know, we can remedy or ameliorate in the future. Uh, and so when, when I think about mentorship, it's, it's a lot less of like a formal, um, you know, uh, relationship between someone who's more experienced and someone who's less experienced and a lot more, you know, uh, an ethos where you're, you're hungry for knowledge, where you're sort of driving a process forward and taking, you know, bits and pieces from, from everyone you're interacting with. And, and I think that's true, not only in a professional setting, but like also in, in a personal setting. One of the things that I try to be is, is very intentional, very deliberate, very discerning about who I spend time with, Right. Not only is you know the same true birds of a feather flock together, the average of the five people you spend the most time with, but uh, I like to think of myself as a behavior thief. You know, um, if I like something that you do that I don't do, then then I like to take it. You know, I like to take it and make it my own. I like to take it and bring another level of intensity to it or come at it from a different angle. Um, you know, before we we started the podcast, we talked about our mutual friend uh, Troy Jones. You know, Troy's a hell of an athlete and, and an amazing founder of a video game company called Status Pro. Uh, it's done the first licensing deal with the, um, the NFL for a virtual reality video game. You know, Troy lives building away from me, but I introduced him to a mutual friend. And uh, he works out every day at 5.15 in the morning. 
And um, first time we worked out, worked out 11 o'clock on a Saturday. And I remember once you working out again, he said 5.15 or 6 a.m. Monday. So I picked that up from Troy. And not only does he go to the gym consistently, rain, sleet, hail, snow, um, to the extent that happens at night, but uh, when he shows up there, he's focused, he's driven, every rep is done, uh, exceptionally high level attention to detail, with a high level of intensity. I stole that. So that's now part of what I do. So I also now get up early. I also show up rain, sleet, hail, snow. I also come in with the same level of focus and rigor. And I do it with all my friends, you know, and and with uh, with any counterparty that I, I have the privilege of interacting with. I think that, you know, when you when you seek out and kind of find mentors naturally in every place in your life, you become a sponge for knowledge, not just technically, but, you know, uh, again, I think with respect to the intangibles that ultimately, um, in my opinion, are a better indicator of success than, you know, how quickly you can do some of the real estate math in your head. I truly believe that one of the precursors of success is, is your ability to be confident, but then also being humble enough to know that you can learn from anyone at any, any given time. And where I was going with this was that the importance of mental reps, right? So my path was I worked for someone for four years and I've been full time for a year and two months now. Right. And that gave me the, the skills and everything that provided me the foundational knowledge or the experience or the expertise to be enough to be dangerous. Right. I think in your journey as well, you also gained a lot of mental reps. Right. And this this question is somewhat rhetorical, but I would imagine that that had a ton to do with your early development to where you are today as you know, how are you today now? Oh, man, I'm 29. One foot in the grave. Yeah. And you have, you've, you've amassed a lot of education and a lot of expertise that someone that a 29-year-old today doesn't have, right? As it relates to, to the growth in the real estate space, I truly believe that mental reps can take you so, so much farther than what someone could ever imagine just by being humble enough to understand the importance of having those repetitions as it relates to your growth in commercial real estate. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's right. You know, um, being exposed to something repeatedly and being, being forced to navigate similar problems over and over again, uh, and, and identify sort of increasingly more efficient solutions is exactly how you get better at something. You know, it's really hard to, to be right the first time you see something, you know, it takes you time to figure it out. You're going to try, you're going to fail. And so, Getting those mental reps, which is, you know, effectively uh, trial and error, but, um, you know, without the tangible or sort of practical consequences uh, is, is not only, you know, how, how we underwrite deals, but, but ultimately how you develop it anything. You know, I, I sort of identifying a transaction, considering what can go wrong, right? Uh, identifying contingency plans based on each of the incremental tributaries that go from that single outcome. Right. And then understanding the decision points that come from, you know, each of the remedies to each of the problems. I'd say, um, you know, another big piece is you learn from experience. They didn't always say whose experience. Learning from your own experience can in large part be be costly, be time consuming. And especially in this business, you don't get a lot of second chances, really any, you know, and very few folks get third chances. Um, So the best experience to learn from is somebody else's. And so I think that that's why you've got to be a vociferous reader. 
I think you, you've got to be somebody who, who's a sponge for knowledge, uh, you know, that, that sort of seeks out narrative and experience from uh, not only your mentors and the people that you sort of immediate proximity to, but, uh, you know, the broader sort of, you know, real estate landscape. Uh, there are tons of books I'd recommend, not just my father's, but New Kings of New York, um, you know, Liar's Ball, Vicki Ward does an amazing job there, um, where you get to understand the nuances of particular transactions. Uh, and you can look at what ultimately was successful, um, you know, and, and how folks navigated problems, uh, what ultimately was unsuccessful and how they failed to navigate problems. Long form journalism, uh, the real deal every now and again has a great story uh, where you learn a lot about how some of these extraordinarily complex and extraordinarily high risk projects come together. They're great resources. You know, if I can learn from, from Sam Zell and, and from my father, you know, um, and, and from Kent Swig uh, and, and from Michael Stern, I, I'd rather learn from them than, than learn from my own experience and my own successes and my own failures, right? Something cost Michael Stern $20 million. I'd love to know what it is and how I can avoid it so it doesn't cost me five. hundred percent, man, hundred percent to portfolio strategy as it relates to, to both peoples and, and legacy, right? There's a lot of challenges in the real estate development space. It seems like the capital markets are changing every day. Construction costs, you know, depending on how you swing it changes, right? There's a lot of things that are changing on a daily basis. How are you navigating through, you know, development in today's environment, given the fact that there's you know, so many things changing in the environment on a daily basis. Um, but as developers, you know, you still want to get deals across the table, you know, in, in, in certain situations. How are you navigating through real estate development in today's environment? Yeah, you know, I, I hate to, to quote the people's principles, but I'll, but I'll do it. You know, um, every setback is an opportunity in disguise. And, and the cyclical nature, uh, you know, of, of real estate broadly offers developers an opportunity. You know, today, land is extraordinarily cheap relative to what it was 24 months ago. Though interest rates are higher, the compression in the, in the hard cost in the contractor market will be in large part ameliorated by the time development projects that are acquired now are entitled and fully designed. And uh, you have an opportunity in large part to counter cyclical, right? Uh, to buy when no one else is buying, to price when no one else is pricing, and to deliver when no one else is delivering. And when you think of a development life cycle of a year of sort of entitlement permits and drawings and two years of development and delivery three years out from now, and then you, you, you know, look at that against your know, SOFR curve, you see much more dovish monetary policy and the assumption implicative in the rates that, uh, that the economy is on much better footing and that ultimately we're back on a growth stage as opposed to, um, you know, one that's much more focused on curtailing inflation and resolving some of the snares in the supply chain. You know, from an asset class perspective, uh, I think we've seen structural shifts, right? Uh, it's not, the, this is maybe the millionth podcast where, you know, we talk about the, the sort of COVID-induced structural shift out of urban infill office uh, to, you know, reduced office footprints, um, offer diaspora, net relocation from uh, high cost, low quality of life states to the Sun Belt. Um, and, and a number of those sort of macro trends maybe have backtracked to some degree, uh, but ultimately we've seen, you know, a huge recalibration in office values that's led to some relatively high profile defaults. And, and ultimately that reprice will then create another set of opportunities. 
I think one that's really interesting that you've seen Silverstein talk about, you've seen executed in uh, sort of a previous financial crisis in the financial district in New York, is that office to residential conversion strategy. I think that that's really interesting. Uh, I think that you have to be discerning about basis uh discerning about floor plates, uh, a number of sort of your, your class A luxury office, or I guess now class B and class C office product uh, as inefficient floor plates relative to, you know, multifamily use. And, and you have to find ways to navigate that or, you know, identify older vintage buildings that have smaller floor plates, uh, a lot like you see, you know, in and around Wall Street. But uh, I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of excitement around strategies like that. I love uh, continued luxury condo play in high barrier entry, high cost markets. Think, you know, West Chelsea, New York City, you know, Central Park adjacent. Ultimately, the the first people who come back and, and come back roaring uh, after an economic decline are the ultra wealthy. And they'll be looking to capitalize on a low interest rate environment and lock in, you know, home purchases uh, at extraordinarily low interest rates like they've done during the pandemic. I mean, it's no accident you see guys like Byron Allen spending nine figures on Malibu mansions because interest rates are one and a quarter percent for them uh, with their PWM relationships. So you know, when, when you think about an economic resurgence, for better or for worse in America, that leads uh, with the luxury sector and we want to be a part of that. I think hospitality changed. You know, business travel uh, has certainly died down. Yeah, that's a Zoom. I don't have to fly up to D.C. to be a part of this from Miami Beach. And uh, that's not only true of podcasts, but for a fair number of meetings. But uh you know, leisure travel is is more and more accessible and, uh, you know, kind of the millennial and Gen Z demographics are much more interested in spending dollars on experiences rather than uh, rather than objects. You know, they want to take a trip to Europe as opposed to buy a Rolex. And, uh, and it's true sort of up and down the socioeconomic ladder. So when we think about hospitality, we really kind of like the movement or the cycle away from focus, from business destinations to sort of leisure and tourism destinations with you know a big focus on experience and placemaking, F and B in your sort of Thursday to Sunday room nights. Yeah, and, and there, there's so much to unpack there to the trained ear. You know, we can spend hours talking about it. But one of the things that that you talked about was this office opportunity, right? And we're seeing things on like the real deal where I think there was a, a huge building that sold yeah. last year for like 260 that was sold for like 60 million or something like that recently. Are you seeing like the office space is the most, you know, opportunistic side of, of opportunities for your firm? It's, it's the most distressed side, but, but I don't know, you know, I think you have to be really discerning about where the upside is. I think it's really hard today to tell yourself a compelling growth narrative um, about, you know, urban infill, class B, class A minus office. I just don't think you can. You know, truth is, white collar professionals don't believe they need to go into the office, and in large part, COVID proved that they were right. And uh, particularly with the millennial and Gen Z, you know, uh, generations, it's going to be very, very hard to draw them back uh, into the office five days a week, and as a consequence, that office footprints have shrunk. Right? I, I think that there's almost a period at the end of that sentence, and there's not much to follow. So when we think of opportunities, I, I like a residential conversion for for certain ultra distressed office properties whose floor plates and sub markets are conducive uh, to that execution. Uh, when you think broadly about asset classes, I think today I love multifamily. And I like it for a few reasons. One, I, I think the fundamentals are there. Due to high interest rates and, and a variety of other, you know, um, 
we'll call them like quasi-political factors, uh, it's it's extraordinarily challenging for, for millennials and for Gen Zers to purchase homes uh, at the rates that uh, the Gen Xers or, or sort of their parents did. Um, that that means that we've got more people and we've got more renters. And at this point, you know, the United States is underhoused by a considerable degree. Uh, so we need more places for people to live, which won't be disrupted by technology. And uh, very, very few of those people or increasingly small number as a percentage uh, will be able to purchase homes. And so the demographic arguments associated with multifamily residential rentals are extraordinarily strong. Couple that with like, the strong preference for millennials and Gen Zers uh, to be in, you know, quasi-urban environments or what we call live-work-play environments where they're nearby an office to the extent they have to go to one or co-working space, walkable retail, park space, um, and, and mass transit, you know, you, you start thinking, you know, urban infill, Sunbelt MSAs. Unfortunately, from an opportunistic investor standpoint, this is a relatively old narrative. And during COVID, uh, you saw, you know, a fair amount of capital uh, flood into these assets at extraordinarily low interest rates. Anything that took max leverage over the past five to seven years uh, in a Sunbelt environment or a multifamily space, you know, is is faced with a devil's bargain. They've got a maturity coming up and they're forced with, with a tough challenge, right? It's either cash in refinance uh, or they've got to sell the asset. And anybody who's in the market today where interest rates are where they are has to be there. It's not the, it's, it's, it's the worst time to sell over the past decade. Uh, so anybody that's selling now is distressed, full stop. And I think, you know, a very, very distressed marketplace with great sort of demographic and narrative upside, that creates, I think, both ends of the barbell for the opportunistic investor to get in, you know, uh, during short-term dislocation and interest rates at what we consider to be like a below market or below par, below replacement cost basis, and then ride up the value accretion, both through rent growth as a consequence of the demographic trends and through cap rate compression as a consequence of, you know, more dovish monetary policy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you said a lot there that, I, you know, it was a, th- a lot of, you know, times to, to, to pause about. This is great, man, because I, when I talked about office, I was more so speaking about the opportunities as a reconversion, right? Or a conversion to multifamily. I think with, with the with the opportunities that are out there at the, you know, the thing about conversions is that obviously the price has to make sense, right? Your basis has to make sense because there's a significant cost to fitting out for a multifamily project, right? And I think you know, to your point in the multifamily space, we're certainly seeing that as as well. I think for people who are getting into this space, it's really, really important to make sure that you're not projecting any sort of um, exorbitant rent, right? If you're thinking that you're going to jump into a market where, you you know, rents were 10% last year and you're thinking that, you know, it's probably going to be 10% this year, then you're probably going to be in a world of hurt, right? What we're seeing is that things are softening across the board. You know, some markets are still displaying stronger fundamentals than others, it comes down to the fundamentals, right? And it comes down to just making sure that you're buying the right property in the right market. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you're doing that and you and you have your fundamentals that solid and you're putting on the right debt and you're not, you know, exposing yourself, you know, floating rate debt without a cap and you're doing all the, all the things correct, if you're buying in the right market, everything else should make sense, right? And it should pan out the way that you think that it would. Um, it's just, you know, like you mentioned, right? The, the folks that bought, pre-pandemic levels, you know, pandemic levels that loaded up with bridge debt and, you know, max leverage and, you know, underwrote 
they were going to get out at X cap rate, but the cap rates are 200 or 300 basis points higher. Those are the ones that are really in distress, right? And, you know, we're buying, in fact, we're buying a deal right now. It's not necessarily in distress, but the, the owner has to, you know, the, the, their term is up, right? So they, it doesn't make sense to refinance. So I think there's, there's certainly a lot of opportunities and I'm a hundred percent preaching out there, you know, now is the right time to buy, you know, as long as you buy with the right fundamentals. I mean, if the way I look at it is, you know, if prices are down and if, if anything, right, if I'm interested in an asset and I can tell you that the price is down maybe 10 to 20 percent, you know, why not buy that asset? Right. If it makes sense. That's how we're looking, looking at opportunities today. Yeah, look, I, I, I broadly, I mean, I agree. I think uh, there's there's an old adage, right? Maybe Warren Buffett said it or, or somebody, you know, obscenely wealthy and kind of pithy. It's, uh, you know, when others are scared, be greedy. When others are greedy, be scared. There's there's a less charitable one that says when there's blood in the street, buy property. But I think all that's true, right? You know, when interest rates are high, when development sentiment is low, it's the opportunity to lock in land basis, uh, you know, and not to kind of overuse these platitudes. But, uh, you know, if your money's long, your luck will change, right? So if you have patient capital, you know, the American economy will rebound, uh, will move from much more from this sort of hawkish sentiment that the Fed has uh, to uh, a little bit softer, a little bit more dovish monetary policy, uh, lower benchmark interest rates, mean lower cap rates, which means value growth alongside your rent growth or cap rate compression as a concept with cap rate compression and rent growth occurring simultaneously, which is such a, you know, kind of great set of circumstances for your typical multifamily investor. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 I very much agree with, with your sentiment and uh, I think you're right. I think when, when folks are coming in to, uh, to the industry initially, um, a lot of it can seem daunting. Uh, and there's, there's sort of this big push to do your first deal. It's sort of that excitement there's, there's maybe a propensity to over, uh, or to underwrite irresponsibly. You know, I, I make sure I encourage people to focus on, as you mentioned, the fundamentals, but, uh, you know, also to you know, evaluate transactions clear-eyed, uh, not care so much about winning the deal uh, as much as ensuring that it's profitable. You know, um, you can always do another deal if instead of a, a you know, 15% IRR, you made a 20% IRR. Right. Or instead of a, a 20% IRR, you made a 15% IRR. Right. It's a lot harder to do your next deal if instead of a 20% IRR, you made a six. Right. Or, or God forbid, your investment horizon got pushed out two years and your investors, you know, clawed their way back to par. You know, it's a capital game. Capital allocators have, have tons of options, particularly with smaller scale developers. And to the extent that you've got a blemish on your track record, you know, particularly early in your career. Uh, it makes it really, really, really tough uh, to get a second chance. And so I'd encourage folks as they start uh, to make sure their first deal is a winner. Be patient, pick a sure winner. You know, once you get a couple under your belt, then all of a sudden you've got a lot more leeway to fail. And, and you could be like Harry Macklow and, you know, go broke a couple of times, but, uh, but make it all back and, and build some iconic skyscrapers. Man, that's, that's, there's so much, <laughs> so much gems in what you just said. I think a lot of people really need to like, run that back and let that like sit in their minds because so many times people try to get their home runs and their first deals and, and end up flopping and, and, you know, getting into situations where they can't recover. And, you know, specifically, you know, when you're starting off, like you said, 
when you're trying to establish a track record and your track record is, you know, a little spotty, then it's really, really tough to, to recover. So it's like, it's like playing pickup basketball, man. First time they pass you the ball, you take a contested three and you miss it. You're not passing the ball again. You know, yeah, let it touch your hands, <laughs> swing it around, you know, drive and kick. All right. Uh, make a lower risk play initially. You know, get yourself an opportunity to get a few looks at it before you swing hard and get home run. See, see that that's elite podcasting right there. I transitioned sports analogies midway through the analogy. I went basketball <laughs> to baseball. And look, I, I told you, man, like I came here. I wanted to be a most watched podcast. I love Chris and Fume and Bua. So, you know, hopefully uh, they're not too mad that I push them down to second and third place, respectively. <laughs> well, we're, we're all, we're, I'm sure they're, they'd, they'd be happy to know that, um, you know, someone would be uh, of your stature <laughs> would be the one that's taking, taking your spot. <laughs> Hey, listen up. If you're an employee, business owner, or professional athlete with money in the bank earning 0% return and you're thinking about passively investing in real estate, well, you need to check out our ultimate syndication guide for passive investors. This free guide absolutely covers everything you need to know about passively investing in real estate syndication or just real estate in general. If you want access to this valuable resource, go to MerlinAcquisitions.com slash Passive Guide to download the free syndication guide for passive investors. That's M-E-R-L-Y-N-N Acquisitions.com slash Passive Guide or head over to the show notes and click the link to download. Now let's get back to the show. So you're in the affordable housing space, right? Legacy you know, you guys are focused on affordable housing developments. It's a struggle from state to state, depending on where you are from a bond perspective, right? And I heard you on a separate podcast. You're, you know, focused on some act rehab stuff as well. Um, how challenging has that been in terms of penciling affordable housing developments, you know, in today's environments where um, bond caps are, are struggling, you know, across the board, I, I guess, holistically in, in the affordable housing space? Yeah. I think that's a good question. And I have to resist the urge to get super detailed and nuanced and nerd out about this. Uh, affordable housing financing is, is complicated. It's niche. Uh, it's something I'm really passionate about. Um, but, but to answer your question, I mean, has the environment gotten more challenging? Uh, I think yes. Um, it's gotten more challenging for a few reasons. Uh, one, because interest rates are higher. It means properties can carry uh, less permanent debt, and as a consequence, they need more gap financing, which is the which are the soft loans that the municipalities give you uh, that don't necessarily need to get paid at, paid back. They sort of fill the gap in the capital stack uh, between your your tax credit equity and, and your perm financing. Um, so it's a bigger burden on on cities and municipalities as a consequence, uh, and that burden is exacerbated because as a consequence of higher interest rates. The benchmark returns for your tax credit equity investors are also higher, which means your tax credit proceeds are lower. There's also uh, you know, less taxable gains, um, which means that the aggregate market for tax credits is, in fact, smaller. Um, and so you have less people needing higher returns. Uh, those are both dilutive to the market. Uh, and when your tax credit equity pricing goes down and your permanent proceeds go down, into the burden on municipalities to fill the gap in the capital stack goes up, um, you know, and, and cities, unfortunately, are, are seeing significant revenue drops, particularly cities like Washington, D.C., uh, that rely on the property tax rolls for a significant portion of municipal revenue. Uh, there, uh, they've seen meaningful recasts and office valuations 
as a consequence of a reduction in gross receivables. Uh, you couple that with an increased focus on providing social services, uh, which are you know, costly and dilutive to a municipal balance sheet. And you're in a place where they've got less money to fund deals that each need incrementally more money to deliver the same number of units. That's not an advantageous uh, set of circumstances for the marketplace. And that's, you know, that's true sort of with or without, uh, you know, bond cap issues, which I know Washington, D.C. is running into, and um, obviously California, New York, Virginia, um, you know, all have uh, extraordinarily advanced affordable housing marketplaces uh, that are navigating bond, bond cap or bond allocation cap issues as well. That's, I totally agree, man. I think, um, you know, Maryland has, you know, some funds available to, to, to bridge the gap on some of the affordable housing developments, and you're seeing some other states come out with that. I think it's just something to monitor for for folks who are you know looking to get into the affordable housing space on how to really put those developments together, right? Because if it doesn't pencil, it doesn't <laughs> it isn't going to work out. It isn't going to come out the ground. Mm-hmm. So I totally agree with that 100. percent As you continue to to build out you know legacy or you know you're a second generation developer, so how important is infrastructure and systems to you and the firm currently as you constantly evaluate the marketplace, constantly are looking for ways to grow and constantly are looking for ways to expand. Are you guys paying attention to or or how important is systems and infrastructure as it relates to the growth and scalability of of both firms as you, you know, you kind of run the ship, so to speak? Yeah, look, I think um, that's a great question, you know, and and it's a challenge. I think going from what Peebles and, and Legacy both are, right, though Peebles is significantly larger, it's sort of retained this, um, you know, entrepreneurial ethos. We do a lot of big deals with very, very few people. And, and I think transitioning from, uh, you know, an, an entrepreneurial environment uh, where, you know, we're constantly, you know, solving problems and, and sort of bootstrapping ideas to something that's that's a lot more institutional, um, you know, is, is a fun challenge to tackle. You know, bring in folks with with institutional investment experience uh, to create and sort of replicate processes they've seen in places like Carlisle and J.P. Morgan. Um, you know, are the right answer, um, but it's it's a challenge. I think as as an organization grows, you know, founders and, and high level executives have to cede control of decisions and begin to take control of process and understand that the process ultimately leads to the right decision. And, and so, you know, refocusing our attention uh, to how we do things and not precisely what we're doing is something that we're attacking right now, you know. Um, but uh, I, I think a fun takeaway, you know, or maybe the right takeaway uh, for, for investors who listen to your show and, and regardless of the size that they are, though, though I'm sure like David Rubenstein's probably listening to and, and Carlisle's not so small. So when we look at deals, right, there's sort of an initial pass at underwriting. But then I love to start thinking about cases, right? So you have your base case, you have your upside case, and in both of those, presumably you make money, right? But spending time on your downside case is really interesting. It's not just answering the questions, well, hey, how much money will I make if this happens? It's answering the question, what could go wrong? What ha- what are the implications if that goes wrong? And if that goes wrong, what are the steps to remedy or ameliorate the problem? How can I, how, how do I attack this? And what does that mean from a pre-development expenditure standpoint, a sellout standpoint, from a rent standpoint? You know, if this sort of possible adverse set of conditions occurs, how let me solve for it ahead of time 
So they get the mental rep ahead of time so that to the extent that it happens or something like it happens on another deal, I've got a plan of action, right? Or a direction that I want to head that I've spent time thinking about uh, when there isn't the pressure to execute. And so whenever we're going to write something, we love to look at different cases, you know, and understand the dilutive effects of a downside outcome uh, and how we can claw our way back to base case or upside. I think that's the level of really being a visionary supplemented with the ability to put in systems and processes and having those SOPs so that you're not running into the same situations twice. I think a lot of times as entrepreneurs, in particular real estate investors, we're so um, weedy and in, in the deal from a day-to-day basis or in our businesses from a day-to-day basis, it really takes uh, some sort of um, longevity and visionary lens to really sit back and really look back and or look forward and, and put yourself in a situation that would allow you to things in place so you're not hitting the same issues that you ran into in the past. Or when you, you know, you run into similar situations, you have your bases covered that would allow you to exceed your expectations moving forward. I think that right there is one of the biggest reasons why investors fail is because they have the they don't have the ability to to sit back and look at the whole picture in totality, but then also they don't have the the ability to create those systems that would allow them to succeed in the long term for the most part. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, I think you have to plan for each stage of your growth um, as a business. And, you know, when, when you're just starting out, you know, you're, you're managing you, you're managing your emotions, your risk tolerance, uh, you're managing the transaction itself. Um, but ultimately as you grow and it's or your need for man hours grows commensurately, you need to begin to manage people and then subsequently manage process and getting further and further away from the transaction itself or further and further away from the dirt itself is really tough for a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of founders. And, you know, for someone in my position, who's, who's in large part tasked with navigating that transition, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a unique challenge. One is certainly more than capable of meeting, but, uh, it's, it's difficult to be so far apart from someone that you love, you know? It's like it's a developer, man. The further you are away from the dirt, the worse you are. Um, but as as an entrepreneur and as a business owner, uh, it's not practical to consider to make every decision uh, and to understand the nuance, you know, behind each respective transaction. It's a great way to fail. It's a great way to fetter your growth. So as you give up control, you have to have faith in you know your corporate culture and, and the SOPs that you put in place. And you know, I think in large part we're well on our way to doing that put some pretty talented people in a position to be extraordinarily successful. And hopefully the, the business has an opportunity to grow exponentially um, because we've got a lot of, of disparate experience, a lot of unique perspectives that are only going to add value to the process as we move forward. Yeah, man, those, those were, were wise words, hundred percent. I think that's, that's how you build a self-sustaining business, right? That's how you actually become a CEO of a company and a firm and putting little chess pieces in place or, or systems in place that allows it to kind of run, uh, you know, like an oil, well-oiled machine, right? While you're just focusing on being being the visionary. So 100%, man. Hey, Donnie, this was a great time for, you know, us to, to connect and really learn more about what you're doing for our audience to learn more about your strategy as it relates to legacy and people's uh, your outlook on the economy, your outlook on the market, where you're seeing opportunities. I think there's a ton of value in today's show. So thank you again for being 
a guest on on our show today. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Mogul Marathon Commercial Real Estate Podcast. Let's take action. Be great today. And remember that real estate is a marathon, not a sprint. So run your own race. Thanks again, Donnie. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.